0: Okay, the button pressing has commenced, and we are brought together in this asynchronous moment. This is Jay Brown Yoga Talks Podcast. My name is Jay Brown. If this happens to be your first time here, let me welcome you. And... Thanks to everyone for choosing to listen. Today is a special day for the show. Derek Sivers is here. And I am going to tell you about why that is so significant and special in just a bit. But first, I do want to report to longtime listeners. I'm not going to take a lot of time to do like a major check-in like I sometimes do. I don't want to get between you and today's conversation. However, if you have been listening in, then you know some weeks back, when things were looking at their most bleak for me, I, in a desperate rampage, applied for every potential pandemic assistance that I might qualify for. And over the last few weeks, I've been talking about that and really feeling very cynical about it and not having faith in our institutions that they would help me at all. And then this week, two out of the three things that I applied for went through. So I was approved and funded for a PPP loan. And then I also got processed for the unemployment assistance for gig workers that they legislated. And it's been huge. I mean, that loan it made up for the losses over the last several months and then now the unemployment assistance is some money coming in through the end of the year and of course now that I've gotten that assistance I feel guilty about it like there's lots of other people who probably need help more than me who aren't getting help and that's a longer conversation maybe I'll Speak to that some on the other side today. But I just felt like I needed to mention that this happened because I have been, you know, talking shit about our institutions and then they actually did come through for me this week. I will say, if you tried to get a PPP loan and it didn't go through, it's a very good idea to apply again at another bank. From what I understand, it really often depends on who's handling your loan application And I think the reason why mine went through is I have like an over 12 year business relationship with my bank that started with me getting an SBA loan back in 2007. So that long history of relationship between me and my bank and the SBA, I think is why mine may have gone through where others are not. And in terms of the unemployment assistance, I just think it has to do with your state that you're living in and how well they're managing to implement this new program that really doesn't fit in with the existing bureaucracy based on wage earners, you know. But props to Pennsylvania. Thank you, Governor Wolf. He managed to make it happen for me. So, for whatever it's worth, felt like I had to mention it. Can't just bash my government and then not give them credit when they do something right. Not that I think our government's doing everything right right now, but at least in this moment, something that the government has done has helped me, and I am grateful for it. And you know, it was right about the same exact time when I was in the depths of despair and, you know, frantically trying to fill out these applications that today's conversation happened. You see, Derek Sivers is a person who I would have never imagined that I would get a chance to speak to, much less get to record a conversation for this show with. Like if someone asked me that question where they say, if you could have any three people dead or alive over for dinner, who would it be? Like I might have said Derek Sivers (laughs) is one of those people that he's someone who really I've taken inspiration from and has had an impact on me. And I would have never thought that I would ever get a chance to talk to that guy. And it still blows my mind that this happened, honestly. (laughs) I I talk with Derek right at the beginning some about exactly how this came about, so I won't spoil that. But just to say that I was really feeling down, and then all of a sudden, I've got an email from Derek Sivers scheduling time to record with me. And it really felt like the universe was trying to hook me up. Like it was a friend and it was saying, Hey man, I'm I'm sorry. Things are so fucked up right now, but I know that it would mean a lot to you to talk to Derek Sivers. So here you go. (laughs) And the conversation had such a wonderful effect on me. Like the same things that, reading about him and getting his emails and stuff does for me like the kinds of synapses that fire when I I think about that that I've taken that have been useful to me were really brought to a wonderful fruition in this conversation and it had this lovely effect of shifting my viewpoint which Derek talks about today you'll hear and I'm just overjoyed that it's been documented, and that I'm getting to share it with you today. Very quickly before we get to it, let me just drop some of my stuff here. If you are interested in finding other ways to connect with me, there are lots of ways that you can do that. The tour dates are all on hold now, but there is a 12-hour online workshop that you can take. There's also some on-demand practice videos And then, of course, if you want to get into some real time with me, there's weekly live classes and my teacher's call. Or even if you just want to spout off about some stuff and shoot me an email, all of it can be found at jbrownyoga.com. All right. That's good. Let me not be long-winded and get us to the matter at hand. I will touch base with you on the other side. But for now, I, I recommend that maybe... For this one you you sit down or you not be multitasking. This is one that I think deserves our full attention. Please enjoy this conversation I had with Derek Sivers.
1: Hello, Mr. J Brown.
0: Mr. Derek Sivers. <laughs>
1: By the way, thank you for not doing video. It is so much nicer to just do audio.
0: I never do it.
1: It's a weird um, trend that's happening now. I think people are just getting used to doing video conferencing. So even if they're only going to use the audio, a few people lately have said, well, let's just turn on the video anyway. I'm like, Dude, no, 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 no. That's so distracting to see my face on the screen. And
0: I know. I was, just, I was writing this recently because for a while I was doing live streaming where it was just one way. Mm -hmm. And that was really just performing for a camera. And then then it's a little different now that there's two-way because I can focus on other people and not myself, although it's hard. But when that's gone and it's just voice to voice like this, it feels like I'm talking to you. And there's not that me looking at myself in the camera thing.
1: Exactly.
0: Yep. You'll have to forgive me this one moment because I've been on your mailing list for a lot of years. And I want to give some credit to my friend and producer, Josh Citron, because he's the one who turned me on to you many years ago. And he was a composer and a musician who was an early adopter of CD baby. And he, you know, brought you into our conversation when he was educating me about how to use what I was doing as like a, independent creator in a more effective way to make a living, essentially, you know, how to, how to find a way to make money off what I was doing without completely destroying the thing that I was doing or something. And you were, you've been like kind of an Oracle to us of sorts. Like if you, this is the matrix that we're in, you're a bit of like the Oracle for us. And so I've been on your mailing list for years and you don't send out a lot of emails. you <laughs> And I mean, it's not like you do regular no. email blasts or anything no, like that. And so when a few weeks back, you sent out an email some weeks ago, and in it, you had this note to your people on your list saying, hey, I want to connect with you. And if you have a podcast, email me and I might come on your show. I knew that I was going to email you. And i I kind of wanted to make it a an exercise in what I think of as the ideas that Derek Sivers has propagated or that I've integrated. And it was this exercise in I'm I'm not writing this email to try to get Derek Sivers to come on my show. Like I really genuinely in myself managed to achieve a state where I had no expectation that I was going to ever get to talk to you. And I just wrote the email because it was meaningful for me to do so. And I thought that's the spirit of Derek Sivers. I'm gonna read. <laughs> and I and I shot it off. And then you actually got back to me. And then even that exchange, that email I sent you, even though I, I it was basically in my mind the equivalent of a Hail Mary pass. Hmm. And this moment feels like the touchdown. <gasps> Aww, you know what I mean? Like right? I'm actually speaking with you. And frankly, just to add, this moment's coming after a string of kind of shitty days. So it's just Uh, a bit more special. So thank you for being so accessible and for giving me some of your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thanks, Jay. That's like the sweetest intro ever.
0: (laughs) Well, again, I find that you're a mix in the things that I've read of sometimes really practical, pragmatic information that I think applies to like doing business. And then at the same time, there's so much sensitivity and heart to it. So that was my, my play for you It <laughs> was to say, show you my heart and see if you would respond. And you did. And that's amazingly cool. So Thank you. in any case, to start us off, I, I had emailed you some thoughts. And one of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about getting a chance to speak to you was that, you know, I have understood that all the things that I've done that have been successful, they started out as just like I was describing to you, like I'm getting to talk to you now, as just a process of, you know, inspiration, somewhere from within me. And yet, at the same time, as things have gone on, and I now have a family, and I have, you know, responsibilities, I have had to feel like I need to be more strategic, I need to have a spreadsheet and and look at trends and see if I can make informed choices and doing some of that has helped me. But I know that you starting CD baby, and I guess people who don't know, you might not know that, but you were one of the first people to have like a, like an internet venture in CD baby. And, you know, my producer, Josh Citron, I think I mentioned, turned me on to you and that example of CD Baby was something where it clearly started out as just an inspiration. But as time went on, I'm wondering, did that change? And since then, how much of what you've done has had like a strategic component from the onset or does that come in later?
1: Hmm, I think it has to start with an inherent or intrinsic fascination, right? Like, it, it, unless you really are completely broke and desperate and just need to do something to make money right now, this week, usually we try to find that balance of something we like to do that is smart to do. <laughs> and I, like, I think smart is a, a nice shortcut for the idea of, strategy. Uh, Strategy almost sounds conniving, but you know, just call it being smart. (laughs) Sometimes though, you don't need to balance. Like you can just decide that this thing you want to do is not smart, but it sounds incredibly fun. So you're just going to do it anyway. And this is going to be the fun part of your life instead of watching TV or whatever else people do for fun you're going to start this ridiculous venture and create a new board game or start painting a painting every week or whatever it is that is fascinating you right now you know you're going to you're going to learn how to speak hungarian you know there's no practical reason for that but if it's exciting you yeah, well that's life you know you do it because it's fun and then yeah you could do something just for strategy like just for the profit and in a way that can be kind of a a different kind of fun, kind of like exercise, right? Like for most people, exercise itself isn't that fun, right? Like getting up at 5.30 in the morning to go jogging. It's it's like a deeper happiness, right? It's not the shallow happy of eating ice cream. It's the deeper happy of not eating the ice cream and being proud of the results. So sometimes when you do something just for the strategy – you're doing it for that second level happiness that um, it may not be the, the instant joy of writing a song, but it can feel really good to go out into the world and try to make money and have it work, you know, and that can be really smart. But in your question, there was an interesting kind of between the lines idea about justifying the time and effort.
0: Well, that's what I was going to say because my example they sent to you was that, you know, I've long, I write a blog every month, for, you know, 800 words at least every month that I think would be interesting for someone to read. And I've been doing that for over 10 years now. And I've long felt like I would like to just sit and write like a longer thing. Like I feel like I've got at least a book or two in me that I would really like to write. And it would be. It would be hard work. It it would be like you're describing, not like the pleasure of just sitting and having a cocktail. It'd be more like the pleasure (laughs) of having to work out because you know, writing is not exactly the easiest (laughs) pursuit. But I would relish that. However, I do have all of these responsibilities and the kind of time, it would require me to stop doing other things that I'm doing that are providing me income. Right. So I would have to sacrificed the potential well-being of my family to pursue this heart project of writing a book and having looked, as I said, like strategically, maybe not smartly, but having looked at like, well, what would happen if I self-publish a book now? How many people are on my mailing list? How many do I think I could sell? Well, How much money would that be? How much time am I going to have to put in to write this comparatively? You know, I did the whole analysis and I thought, I can't justify it. It just would feel like irresponsible.
1: Got it. Two thoughts on that. For one, uh, my first book, the one that's out on Penguin called Anything You Want, it took basically 10 days to write or to put it together and probably total of maybe, I don't know, 12 hours, 15 hours, because it was just a collection of articles that I'd already written on my site. And then Seth Godin said he wanted to turn it into a book. And all I had to do was that 12 hours I spent just kind of filling in some in-between chapters, kind of like another 20 or 30%, some some stories that I had forgotten to tell that were necessary to include. And that was it. That was my first book and it's on Penguin and it's out there in bookstores. And so you just said that you've been writing every month for 10 years It sounds to me like you've already written the book and you'd be doing the world a favor uh, and saving them a lot of clicking if you took that and made it your first book. Kind of uh, hire an editor to just give you a bit of outside, you know, a second point of view, uh, an improved outside perspective. And then, yeah, maybe you put aside five or 10 hours to take the editor's suggestions, make the improvements and voila, there's your first book.
0: Well, I have started to do that. Actually, what I started okay. to do was put them out. At, I, just, I just went back from the beginning and started recording them as audio first to just Good. sort of like put them out as a podcast because I wanted to. It's just fun to go back and read them, record them. And then I am going to release it as like you could pay for the whole audiobook or you could spend the next five years listening to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's um. sort of the plan, but But again, I have, you see, that's, I could certainly do that, but I have another book in me that I think would, you know, it's different to write something larger with a cohesiveness to it, not just my monthly music.
1: Unless, uh, I mean, (laughs) sorry, I don't mean to, you know, lay lay you on the workshop bench here.
0: No, I like it. Push back. You don't know me very well, but you were allowed to push back on me. Please do.
1: (laughs) I'd argue that even this next book that you have in you, you could approach it the way that you have been with your monthly blogs. Maybe you turned it into a weekly chapter or a monthly chapter, or whatever. But I've just found that releasing things a bit at a time, for one, it gets the ideas out in the air. It lets them breathe a bit. It lets the, the world see them and start to give you some perspective that you might not have considered, especially if you were to just going to keep the whole book to yourself until it was all done. You know, I think it's better to, a piece at a time, start to put it out, even if it's just a really long article you put out. Maybe you start writing two articles per month now, and one is for the next book, and one is for, you know, just the site, or something like that. And then next thing you know, you know, a year has passed and the book is now done, because you put it out into the, the different segments.
0: I'm going to get that. That's instead of just having it be like, oh, I go up to the cabin for a year and write right. it. You just like spread it out over smaller pieces. It doesn't all have to be one shot,
1: right? Uh, yeah, they, they all, I'm going to go to the cabin and make this happen, like you know, Stephen King <laughs> have the pressure of that on you, yeah, yeah. right. And then Annie cracks your ankles. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that that's kind of a recipe for failure i think a lot of people have tried to do that and i think it's just healthier and better and more strategic to uh to just do it a piece at a time and then not make it a huge giant overwhelming thing that you're scared to do okay but i have another idea around this whole subject okay is how a single viewpoint can change everything so You said in there, or we've been talking so far about this idea of justifying the time and effort, but imagine if somebody that you really respected super highly, maybe even a guru, told you that sharing your thoughts with the world is the most important thing you could possibly do to leave your thoughts for future generations because you might die at any time. So it is crucial that you put aside the time to write now before you die. It is the most important work you could possibly be doing. (laughs) And if somebody you respected told you that, you wouldn't be looking at the book as much as just like, "Mm, I don't know how much money this is going to earn me. It's like, no, 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 no. Take that out of the equation. This is the most important thing you can do. Or somebody could tell you that writing a book is one of the best things that you could do to develop your brain. They could say, you know, the, the thought process and the, the way that you hone your ideas and your thoughts, the process of writing a book is one of the best things you could ever do for your brain. And Jay, I know you believe in self improvement. So you must write this book and make it a top priority because it's one of the best things you could do for you. Well, suddenly the way that you're judging that action can be completely changed by a little flip of a switch or a flip of an idea or somebody shuffling your priorities like that. And so I wanted to tell a little story of how that process made me leave America. Okay.
0: I know you left America at one point. So
1: 10 years ago, haven't been back since really. So it was 14 years ago now, 14 years ago, I was in Portland, Oregon, and my friend was a realtor. And she showed me this gorgeous house that she had just sold that day. She's like, oh, my God, you got to see this house. And she showed me the website. And oh, my God, it was breathtaking. It was like, that's my dream home. Oh, my God. And it's right here. And it's on the edge of the forest. And oh, my God, that's great. And for about a minute, I daydreamed about buying a house like that. And like having kids and grandkids and a dog in that house. And then about one minute later, I was horrified at the stagnation of it. Because I I kind of took that minute of joy of imagining myself living in this dream home. But then I imagined a scenario like, wait a minute, do I really want to be like, 80 years old, and somebody asks me, how long have you lived here? And I say, well, I got this house 45 years ago, and I've been here ever since. Do I really want to say that? Or when I'm 80, do I want to be saying like, hey, honey, what year were we living in Beijing? Was that 2019? No, that was 2021. Oh, yeah. Then when did we move to Argentina? (laughs) 2023, oh yeah, now I remember. It's like, (laughs) for some reason, that little scenario with the voices and everything that I just said, like thinking of moving to a house in Portland, Oregon, which to me is about the, for me personally, is like the least interesting place on earth I could live because that I'm like a sixth generation Oregonian. Nothing Mm -hmm. against Portland, but it's like, you know, for me, that's the least ambitious place I could ever be versus living in the whole world. And just that one single minute of comparing those two scenarios in my head just instantly made me go, I got to leave America. I got to get out of here. It's time. And I did. And literally like a few days later, I booked a one-way flight to London and left and did come back for a few months. And then about a year later, I left for good and haven't been back. Um, and it was really because of that one minute of reframing a decision of where to live.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And I certainly get your point about one small little shift in viewpoint changes the whole direction. And that's a conversation that happens on this show a lot. I have all these different academics and philosophers like translating ancient yogic texts. And those texts get translated almost entirely based on the viewpoint of the translator. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you can see how a shift in viewpoint um, has drastic shifts on um, the behaviors and the choices that somebody makes. I'm curious with you that that shift in perspective, like that bit of facility, that moment of pause right there when you were considering those two different visions. And of course you could have envisioned living in that house in Portland in a different way. That didn't seem horrible. That could have been like a really wonderful growing old and being close to your family kind of vision doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be a bad vision, but that moment of pause where you were able to make a choice that I find a really interesting moment. And I'm curious how, how that developed in you. And I should say, you don't know this, but I lived in Manhattan from 1990 until 2005 mm-hmm. before I moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And before I was like into yoga and had a yoga center, I did have a few years as like a starving musician. Mm-hmm. I played electric bass in this very awesome and weird avant noise, jazz, semi improv band called dim some clip chop and we had uh, one album out actually produced by john zorn you might know who he is mm-hmm. he, but he basically just gave us like some money to have studio time because nobody had pro tools back then or anything you had to actually go to a studio and so getting into yoga for me was really like a counterculture move and new york at that time you could do it i had an apartment for 10 years that was like 450 dollars a month So you didn't need to make a lot of money to live there. And I had like all these musician friends. And CD Baby was like the thing because it was the way that you could get your music out there right at the beginning of the internet. Yeah. And so I've heard you talk about that in other interviews about how that happened and how you were just a musician doing your thing and you wanted to sell your album. And I guess when you started CD baby, did you already have this like facility in yourself to take pauses and make choices like you described, or did that come about? And if so, how do you think that came about for you? That kind of facility in yourself or even sensibility or viewpoint where you're making choices in that
1: way. I didn't start getting this reflective Until after I was one foot out the door with CD Baby, meaning from the age of like 14 until 29, I was like absolutely head down focused on being a successful musician. And then at 29, I accidentally started CD Baby. And so for the next 10 years from 29 to 38, I was absolutely massively blinders on, focused and driven to just make CD Baby a great service for musicians. So it wasn't really until the last year or so of CD Baby when it was running itself, it didn't need me anymore, that I started lifting my head up and considering different ways of approaching the world. So this kind of pausing, as you say, I think didn't start until then, which is why I never fault people for not doing it now. Like they're, I always assume that whenever I'm talking about this, all this... Uh, introspective changing your point of view stuff that there's probably a large percentage of people listening like, yeah, 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 yeah. Spit, skip, skip forward. I don't have time for this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, gotta, I got money to make, I got stuff to do, you know? Uh, and I get that because I was like that for what, 25 years or something. I, I didn't have time for esoteric different ways of looking at things like, come on, I'm trying to get successful here, just trying to get my work done. So I get that and I don't fault it, but yeah, I'm, like pseudo retired now, you know, so uh, I get to just be reflective a lot and take my time to look at different ways of thinking of things.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Because also, well, first, I want to say something else, just to everybody listening, when you said you were focused on making CD Baby, like the best thing it could be for musicians. I want to actually cite the things that I think you did that made it so good for musicians, because it's exactly the same things that I say to yoga teachers all the time about their online pursuits. And cool. this again, just shout out to my producer, Josh, because he's the one who schooled me on this. You know, he's, you know, that, that you would get paid every week and that you got to know the names and get the email addresses of all the people who bought your album and that there was no paid pa- placement. Like nobody could pay to like <laughs> get theirs in front of yours. It was like an even playing field. And those qualities.
1: And wait, wait, of like, and there's one more. Oh, what was beaming? the other one? Sorry, this was really. F- I'm beaming here because I actually haven't heard these four points in a long, long, long time. I almost forgot them. If you would have asked me, "Hey, Derek, what are the four missions that you set up CD Baby with?" I would have said, "Jay, I have no idea what you're talking about." But mm-hmm. hearing you say them, I was like, "Oh yeah, I forgot about that." But you, you made me remember the fourth. The fourth part of the mission was: we will never kick you out for not selling enough. Because right. I know in, in the long tail word of the internet, it's like, you know, YouTube doesn't remove videos that aren't being viewed enough. But in the old world of music distribution, yeah, if you gave 500 CDs to a traditional music distributor, and if they weren't selling enough at the stores, they would kick you out. And they'd say, yeah, we're taking it off the shelves. You're not allowed back in. Like You know, you're not selling well enough. Don't come back. So, yeah, that was a, a founding mission of mine, too, is to we would never kick you out for not selling enough. Sorry, well, but, continue. No, I'm, but I'm enjoying it, this thoroughly. Good, because it also for me
0: is a bit of a formula for right now for people who are independent creators. I'm a big fan of, I'm sure you've heard of that idea, maybe you haven't, of like 1,000 true fans. Yeah, Kevin Of Kenny. Yeah, of like not needing reach but having depth. And part of that is like what we just said, like having like 4,000 email addresses makes me more money than other people I know who have a million Instagram followers. Yep. So, and having it be for me a direct relationship and exchange of value, um, and not going through like third party portals and stuff. Yeah. But we'll get to that. I, I want to go back to one other thing because you just said you 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 were graceful enough to admit that it is in the freedom of your semi retirement that you get to be more reflective. And I think you know, and I'm I'm saying this for myself out loud because part of me feels like. Well, fucking A, if I could sell my company for freaking $22 million, then I could sit around and reflect all day too. But at the same time, I know that even just getting ready to talk to you, I was like listening back. And that's why I have those notes because I was listening back to all these old interviews and reading these stuff that you had written. And I was re-inspired. I like deleted shit off of my phone again. Like there are lots of things that I can do. You know, it's it's not this it's a little bit of a red herring almost this idea that because I don't have money, I can't employ these ideas. But at the same time, if I didn't have the stress of these mortgage payments and debt hanging over my head, especially right now, considering everything with the pandemic, it certainly would be a lot easier for me to employ some of these ideas.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, I kind of see it as my job. It's an unpaid job, but it's a bit of my job now, to to think of these things in the same way that somebody who decides that they want to be a stand-up comedian, like part of their job now is to look at the world and say what's what's funny about this, what's weird about this. So I feel like it's a, a bit of my job to look at the way we do things and say like, how else could this be?
0: Well, I really appreciate that too. And I want to say also that I do feel like you give back with what you do. And I know I said that $22 million figure, but I also heard you talk about how you didn't take all that $22 million. that You actually made sure almost all of it went to charities. And that's something that I've really thought a lot about too in fact I have a number for myself that I said if I ever make this amount of money in a year I'm giving the rest away like I don't ever need to make more than this amount of money nice and that is a really liberating thing to do I've not hit it I'm not even close there (laughs) yeah I mean I'm not actually it's not that far away because it's a pretty modest target but Having that feels very important, and I I I got that some from your story a little bit. Cool, hearing about what you did with CD Baby, and why you chose to sell it. Like it wasn't, you know, like Josh was a little like CD Baby changed after you left, as I'm sure you know. I know you probably don't pay attention to it, but there was something that you were doing when you were still like taking the 45 minutes to make each page for each album. You know, (laughs) there was a, an interaction there that I don't know, I guess part of like the scaling of everything is that got lost. So. Yeah. So in any case, I guess where I want to go with you now from here, it has to do with when you do start to, I don't know, try to find this, Maybe not balance. Maybe we're not gonna balance our inspiration and our (laughs) our strategy. Maybe we're gonna go be smart and we're gonna go headlong into things we wanna do. I do know at some point you do need to like have spreadsheets because I ran my yoga center for, you know, I would say uh, seven years just on just pure gut and on if more money's coming in than going out, I'm fine. But at some point, you know, the rent outpaced me and I did feel like, you know, I needed to be smarter about making choices. So I guess I'm wondering when it comes to, I don't know, being smart, do you think that there's a point where it's foolhardy to just be that reflective? Like, I don't know. I know my question is not really well formed,
1: but no, I, I know I know where you're going with this. Is, and I, but I don't think that spreadsheets are necessarily the answer. I've actually okay, read.
0: yeah, that's just my way to signify. But I guess yeah. to put it clearly, you write really simple things like two minute pieces, and they make my heart sing. But then I'm like, okay, but what do I do with that? Like, right? Like, there's something more that has to happen sometimes than just simple formulas, I guess.
1: So this idea of you know, hey, more money is coming in than going out. Um, I think that's kind of like the equivalent of saying, well, I have a roof over my head and I have enough money to eat, so I'm good. Like, There's really something powerful to that. It's a really, really great thing to know that you have a roof over your head and you have enough money to eat, so you know what? Everything else is a luxury. So when you're running your own little small business and you can say like, yeah, more money is coming in than going out, I'm good. Like, That's a great place to start from. But just like as in life, we should hopefully go beyond just a roof over our head and money for food. You want to go beyond that. You want to get into self-actualization. You want to see what you can be, uh, see what else you can do um, that goes beyond that now that you've reached that uh, initial foundation. So the rest to me doesn't feel like necessarily being smart in the terms of like furrowing your brow and looking at a spreadsheet to me it's more like play it's like okay well now that I've just got the basic foundation let's play like let's play with business let's play (laughs) with marketing let's play with finding out what else I can offer my clients like that to me is where it got fun. Well, I guess the whole thing was fun, but but once that I realized that this little hobby of mine was now profitable and people were telling me that they wanted it and they liked it. It's like, "Oh, wow. For the first time in my life I'm doing something people want." You know, my my years as a musician were, you know, it was a pill struggle uh, the whole way. Felt like nobody really wanted what I was doing. So when it was clear that people wanted CD Baby, I was like, all right, rock on. Let's do this. This is fun. So then I would like pick up books on marketing and I'd say, okay, how can I apply this? Mm, I don't know. How can I apply that? Ooh, what if I tried this? And I would just try these little things and you know, two out of three of them would get no response, but one out of three would go well. And I was like, oh, okay. People liked that thing. Okay. What about this? And it's just playing. And those things that I was playing with would boost my, oh, God, I don't even know the term. What do you call it? The top line? <laughs> yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, we say the bottom line when you're talking about like the sum result, but it would boost my top line. So I wasn't nitpicking about what I was spending each month. I wasn't doing the spreadsheet approach, but I was constantly trying to do new things to sell more CDs for my musician clients or do new things to help reach more musicians or do new things that would make my existing clients happier and therefore tell more people about me. And these were all just fun. You know, I had fun picking up these business books from the bookstore and and trying things every week. It was just play.
0: I appreciate that. I've had people on actually talking about like the science of play and flow states and stuff. And it makes a lot of sense that if you can take what would sort of seemingly be a grouchy task and make it playful, that certainly opens up your perspective and possibility. But I would also say that you were also a little bit, maybe right time, right place. Cause they oh, yeah. mentioned it was this early time in the internet. I remember, you know, frankly back in my musician days You know, not a lot, I don't know a lot of people know this, but like I was doing, um, uh, cannabis deliveries, but it was at a time when I was using a beeper and pay phones because there was no, (laughs) there was no cell phones or internet yet. Right. Nice. So you came in right at the beginning of the internet where nobody, and I love hearing you talk about getting a merchant account in 2007. I had to get a merchant account.
1: Wow. And
0: I didn't have to go through the same number of hoops you did, but I did have to jump through a lot more hoops than you do now. There was no Square and PayPal and all that stuff. Yeah. But it seemed like at that early time in the internet, I remember being on BBS systems, you know, and like doing phone freaking and it was such a like formative time. Uh, for the internet. And I have also had Douglas Rushcup on, who's like one of my other oracles. Cool. Uh, particularly his books on the internet were really, you know, important for me also. And I guess I'm just curious about that. Cause you are, I don't know. I is sort of out of the game in a sense. <laughs> like you, you started the game and then you kind of found a way to transcend the game or something. <laughs> and I'm curious how much you have, you know, I'm sure you pay attention to some degree about, the way the internet went, it certainly went from like a more peer to peer thing. And then it got kind of monopolized and everything. I remember I, when I first started my blog, they were all, all the comments were on my website. And then at some point it all shifted over to Facebook. And I've actually now gotten off of Facebook for like the last year and a half. I'm off of social media again. So I guess I'm just curious, like from your vantage point as the earliest of adopters and then now in semi retirement, what do you, what do you think of the evolution of the internet? Is it destroying us? Is it helping us? What do you think?
1: Well, I think we are all a product of our formative times, right? Like somebody who grew up in the Great Depression has a, a, an attitude towards eating everything on your plate versus throwing things out. You know, somebody who grew up in the fuel sor- shortages of the 70s May always turn out all the lights and turn down the heat at night because, you know, we just grew up being told that that was the most important thing. This is a fuel shortage. Now I guess somebody who grows up in the COVID 2020s may always wash their hands more than most people, not their age. So yeah, I was 24 when the internet kind of came out in 1994 and I took to it right away. But to me, it was like a library. It was like an academic totally non-commercial generous helpful place for smart people and it gave me so much that I wanted to give something back you know like it was just this I mean it almost you know made my eyes water how generous and pure and helpful it was so I try to still just keep that spirit or maybe maybe it's not that I'm trying to keep that spirit it's like like I said, we're a product of our formative times. So that formed my approach to the internet. I still treat it like a non-commercial, generous, helpful place for smart people. Um, and if you look over my shoulder, if you were like here in person, you see how I use my computer all day. Uh, I do everything in a black Unix terminal. Like, kind of like what most people see only if a uh, Windows computer crashes to the DOS screen. I just do everything in a raw text terminal because it keeps me focused. It keeps the advertisements away. And it keeps it feeling totally non-commercial, academic, helpful, and inspiring. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a product of that time. But so on to your question, you know, is the internet serving us or zapping away our humanity, I think that people who avoid toxic foods and toxic TV and toxic friends will not let the internet zap their humanity, but people who succumb to negativity and thoughtless rumors will. It's just kind of, it's more just up to the person. It's not the internet that is bad or good. It's up to people. You know, too. You could say the same thing for sugar or alcohol or games, right? I guess games would be the most obvious one. Like you could find uh, nice things to say about games or you could find horrible, condemning, uh, addiction-accusing things to say about games. But I think clearly the internet is a net positive. It's done so, so, so much good for the world, especially when you get out of you know, first world urban centers and you see like you know, people in Vietnam that are able to make a good living online, that whereas before they just would have been in this village cut off. And, you know, it's amazing in whole what the internet has done for the world. But to paraphrase your buddy Rushkoff, um, you have to take control Or be controlled.
0: Program or be programmed. That's correct. (laughs) I was going to say program or be
1: programmed, but that makes it sound like I'm saying everybody has to learn to code. Yeah, no, that's not it. I think that it's about being literate, about being digitally
0: literate, or something maybe.
1: Yeah, or let's just zoom out, and it's. I think it's about control that you have to take control of this or be controlled by it. So. To me, for example, one way to take control is whenever I'm first sitting down at a computer, uh, I mean, sorry, like first installing a computer, the very first thing I do, I instantly switch to the Firefox browser because it's the only one that's non-commercial. It's owned by a nonprofit. And I immediately open up Firefox and install uh, an add-on called uBlock Origin, which just blocks every single advertisement ever so i was actually i've been doing this for so many years i honestly didn't know until just like a year ago that youtube had ads i never knew that and a friend of mine like emailed me he's like dude how do you get rid of ads in youtube and i said oh wow did youtube start doing ads and he goes what and i said what (laughs) Like it took a few minutes of talking past each other before I realized that on his computer, YouTube had ads. I, I never knew that. And I said, oh, dude, what do you... No. Hey, look, install Firefox. Don't do Chrome because Chrome's owned by Google and they want your click money. I said, do Firefox. It's owned by a nonprofit whose mission is to keep the internet fair and free. And now install uBlock Origin. And voila, no more ads of any sort. No more YouTube ads, no more anything ads. And then... My next favorite thing to do is I go into settings and I think it's under history or privacy. There's a settings that where you tell it to delete all cookies every time you close the browser and then make it a habit of every time you're not using your browser, close it, shut it down. And so what that does is it always deletes all of the cookies. So yes, that means you're going to have to log in to your accounts all over again. But I think that's a good thing that If you want to do less of something, you make it more difficult. So you don't tell your browser to save your passwords. Change your passwords to something really long and complicated. So it's a bit of a pain in the ass to go log into your social media accounts. Now you've deleted all cookies. You're not logged in by default. Every single time you open the browser, you're logged out. And hey, what do you know? I'm just using my social media less. And then of course, there's kind of next step things. You get your own site. You stop using the cloud. But the point is, you you get from the internet what you want. You don't let anybody push anything at you. You take control. Don't be controlled by it. Amen. <laughs> I've been really, really working towards that, but it it is some work because
0: the there's such an entrenchment of power now. You really have to go against a grain, well, and
1: I don't know. And, I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, it's I, worth it. I think it's worth it because. To the degree that I have done what you're saying is to the degree that what I am doing is more sustainable, frankly.
1: Right. But I don't know about the going against the grain. I mean, everything I just described, it's like literally the first 12 seconds on a computer. You know, you block origin, cookies, delete all cookies, clear history, go. You know, it's like takes 10 seconds and voila, liberated. You know, so
0: well, when you were saying, and I was like, there's definitely ones that it would be good to make it harder for me to log in, but there's other ones that would just be a pain in the ass. I need to get in, like it's not social media, but like you know, when I got to pay my bills or whatever, I don't want to make that harder, I want to make that as easy as possible. So I guess there's you know both different times when you would do that, but I like what you're saying in terms of i we always call it decentralizing the internet, me and Josh, like right, if I'm going to use these web apps. You know, I can't have all my eggs in one basket. Like, I got to be at the center. So, if this email, you know, service decides to screw me, which they do every couple of years or whatever, I could shift. I could easily find something to replace that and not be fucked.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't. I actually don't have a Google account. I don't use Google for anything. I don't use Google searches. Don't use Gmail. Don't use Google calendars. Nothing. Sorry, I guess I do use Maps sometimes. Um, But but that takes.
0: Doesn't that take a bit of a discipline to do that?
1: No, because like, I've just never, I've yeah. never gotten into using Google. I just, I use DuckDuckGo as my search engine. And yeah. then if you, you do these little bang commands. So even searching maps, I do um, exclamation point M in the search box. And then I type, you know, Wellington, New Zealand or whatever I want to search up on the map. And then they pull up DuckDuckGo maps. Um, I just never, I did, I think like 10 years ago, I had a Gmail account for a little while until I just kind of stopped. I was like, wait, no, this is the centralization thing. I don't, Again, the reason I loved the internet back in 1994 when I got into it, I just loved how decentralized it was. And to me, that's still a core thing that, um, that if, uh, you know, right now I use Fastmail as my email provider. I think it's so worth paying them like a couple dollars a month. It's just so much better than Gmail and it just feels better. But if suddenly the entire world started using Fastmail, well, then I would switch to something else. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah I just think it's important to constantly stay decentralized and it's funny when people try to send me google calendar invites I'm like sorry I don't I don't use google calendar What? (laughs) well what do you do then (laughs) I mean but it's amazing but you see like
0: early uh, innovators like yourself to other people that would think of you as like a Luddite for not using all this stuff but in a way it is retaining some of the original spirit or something of the internet or it really being kind of like a co-op tool for humanity like you were describing it it certainly feels good to think of the internet as this way for me to connect with smart people and that has certainly been part of my experience not just like ways for people to exploit me you know
1: yeah yeah I, i still think it's about control i want to control everything that matters to me i think a lot about incentives I have more incentives to protect my backups than Dropbox does. Uh, I have more incentives to look after my own photos than Google does or Instagram. Let's say I have more incentive to uh, keep my mail private than Google does. Or like just, you know, I, I care more than these companies do about my stuff. So yeah, I've just learned the skills to how to do everything myself. So I don't have any subscriptions. I don't use any cloud services. If there was something that mattered to me enough, I just make it myself.
0: Well, you also have your programming skills enough to do that. Although I've certainly developed a lot of and learned a lot of coding skills to make things happen that I needed to make happen.
1: Right, mine uh, happened the other way around. I wasn't trained in this at all. It's more just like hey, I don't want to use Google's calendar. I need to figure out how to make my own calendar. And I'll just do a couple hours of research. I'm like, okay, it looks like all, both whether it's iPhone or Android, they speak something called CalDAV. So, okay, how do I set up CalDAV? Okay, I'll follow these instructions, follow the tutorial for 20 minutes. Now I have my own CalDAV server. Okay, let me tap something on here, go into settings. Okay, set my CalDAV server to here. Hey, cool. I host my own calendars on my own private server now. Done. It took like two hours. It wasn't like... I did that because I was an expert first. I became an expert in how to host my own calendars because I knew this was important to me and I didn't want Google having my calendars.
0: Well, I want to connect that to a yoga thing because... All right, good. One of the, some
1: nerding out. No, I love it.
0: It's a great nerd out because it's right. And it it's the conversation that we've been having in the yoga world is that for a long time, yogic teachings were kind of, very top-down, like very imposed upon you, like this is how you're supposed to do it, um, exactly like this. And then now there's really been like a bit of an evolution, and it's much more about someone's own ability to discover something for themselves. And in a way, that's what you're describing, rather than like even right now in this pandemic, everybody's like, oh, my God, how do I use Zoom? How do I use Zoom? And and, and in a way to to not just like have someone's tell you what to do or how to do, but for you to discover it for yourself, you, you come to know it in a different way and potentially new in different ways. Uh And one of the big principles, and this is something that Josh and I always joke about. We, whenever, cause he's like my business guy conversation, you know, like, we have content conversations too, but we always talk about the stira sukha of this situation. And I emailed you about this principle in yoga, Stira sukha Stira refers to like the effort you make, like the strength and the effort and the sort of force you put into something. And sukha refers to sort of the receptivity and the easefulness and just allowing things to happen as they happen that goes into it. And there's sort of a balance that, you try to strike <laughs> to find, and they sometimes even define yoga, like the reason you do yoga practices is, is to develop Suka in you. And I believe that it applies to everything that you do. And I've heard you actually take some shots at yoga people, which I, I'm going to agree with. Like I heard you talking about people taking on like the trappings of yoga in yeah. an interview, like in, in Santa Monica <laughs> and like people like, you know, wearing ohms and saying namaste and like really identifying, <laughs> you know, rather than sort of, you know, owning for themselves. And I agree because there's a lot of that and sort of, I'm kind of, I try to be a bit of a voice to sort of try to, um, I don't know, debunk some of that hype, you know, that you were pointing to. And I, And I guess this is a long-winded way to get to, it. I'm curious for you, like, I've read you give lots of different principles. What are the things that for you when it comes to, pursuing these things or going about even addressing the internet that you are utilizing right now. Cause I hear all of this time of you sort of being a minimalist and like, you don't have to make it harder if you can make it easier. So I don't know. I'm curious, like what, what things do you think are particularly helpful when it comes to navigating kind of this shifting viewpoint that you're talking about?
1: I think Most of what I pursue, maybe everything I do or pursue, can be broken down into two categories, either solving a problem or self-expansion. A lot of things I do feel like solving a problem. And in fact, I think whether I'm building a new web app or starting a new company or just doing something like I described five minutes ago about like, I want to host my own calendars. It feels like I'm intentionally creating a problem. (laughs) Like, like I want to have an app that does this. It's like, hmm, how would I do that? Now I have a problem I need to solve Um, in a fun way, you know, and then I just get on a mission until that problem is solved. And what's funny is that's a bit of a problem. Okay, wait, I need to pick a different (laughs) word there. Uh, That creates a conundrum because uh, usually the problem is solved when I'm 90% done. And then there's just a little, you know, little pithy kind of stuff to finish it up. And that's no fun. And so very often I do these things like 90% to completion and the last little bit that would make it like done and launched, it's like, eh, well, I've already solved that problem now onto something new. And so that's why when people ask me like, you know, hey, man, where's, why can't I buy that book you t- finished two years ago? It's like, ah, cause I already finished it. Now that like final little 10% of actually like accepting credit card payments and getting it up and selling, like, eh, it's not so fun. <laughs> Oh go on to the next problem. It's like, "Oh, well, I better see that one through all the way so people can buy my book." Um, OK, but yeah, so I think I'd say most of what I do is solving some current problem I've made for myself, that I'm fascinated with. I get fascinated with problems. But I also love self-expansion. And what I mean by that is where you expand your self-identity of like this is who I am, this is what I do, this is where I live, (laughs) these are my hobbies, this is what I know. It's really cool when you can expand that ideally beyond what you ever could have imagined not so long ago. Like this This is gonna sound shallow, but it makes me deeply happy that I have five driver's licenses right now from five (laughs) different countries. (laughs) From U.S., Singapore, New Zealand, Belgium, and England. Because I've been a legal resident of all those countries for the last 10 years. Like I did all of the paperwork and became a legal, you know, green card equivalent holding resident of each of those (laughs) five countries. And so I have the five driver's licenses. And sometimes like, you know, I've just got this little folder uh, where I keep everything, a little Ziploc baggy kind of thing. And every now and then I'll just like lay them all out on the table. And I'll just beam. I'm like, that's so cool. Like, I used to have a little apartment in Brussels. That's so cool. Um, Now, wait, can uh, I jump
0: in? Because that goes to maybe my strategy question. Now, did you have a thought, like, when you said that, the thing that jumped into my mind was, wow, that means he's got a lot. He could go live wherever he wants. Like, oh, did yes. you think about it as like a plan for the, like you having the flexibility to go live where you want? Or was it just cool that you get to have all these <laughs> driver's licenses?
1: Jay, I spent so, so, so many hours of my life daydreaming. I'd say it's probably the activity that I do more than almost anything but sleeping uh, is daydreaming. Uh, active daydreaming, like with my fingers on the keyboard. I I feel like you I've write every you every write stuff you down like everything.
0: I, I'm curious about that. Like why why is it for you? Why do you have to write it down? Like I spent a lot. I spend time daydreaming too. In fact, that's been something I had to work out with my wife. Like she comes from a military family, so in her family, if you were just sitting around, you were lazy. And I'm saying, no, me sitting here staring out the window, this is important. (laughs) I have to do Ah. this. So I'm curious for you. I don't always write it all down. What is it about writing it
1: down for you, do you think? Because whenever I'm writing, it usually feels like I'm planning. It actually took me years to realize that what I'm doing could be called daydreaming. At the time, it feels like I'm planning. Like I'll decide I want to live in Europe. I want to be a citizen of a European country which country in Europe will make me a citizen? First, how can I get to be a resident? Okay, I will hear the different options. Da, 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 da. Okay, it looks like Belgium has a good plan. Okay, how can I become a legal resident of Belgium? Okay, and after I do that, how many years until I can get citizenship? Okay, and then I'll have an EU passport, right? What are the conditions I need to do for that? Because what I really want is to have an EU passport so I can have the legal right to live in Europe for the rest of my life as long as I want, and so will my kids and grandkids. How can I do that? And so, you know, did you hear? I just created a problem for myself. Now (laughs) I've got to solve this problem. Uh, And then I get fascinated, and it's really fun. But there's a lot of daydreaming in there. So it's daydreaming with my fingers on the typewriter, meaning like, okay, well, then where would I live? Let me do some research on where in Belgium would I want to live. Okay, now I got this. How can I find an immigration lawyer? I got to do this. And it's like, I'm planning all this out. So let's pick a less specific one. Like, let's say that I have a bit of a daydream to build my own small home someday. Well, I don't want to just stare out the window and just think of that. I'm going to to open up a new text document. I'm going to say, okay, building my own home someday. Where would I want to do it? I'm, like, I'm just like, start planning everything out. Okay. What would I need to do to this? What I want to do to all myself. Okay. How much do I get? Where would I find somebody to collaborate on the architecture of this thing? What do I need to know before doing this? And I just start, it's, it's like active daydreaming, it, it, but it feels more like planning, but you know, mm-hmm. you could just call it daydreaming. So, does that help uh, explain?
0: It does. I I think I've intuitively always done that as well. Like if I can envision a thing, then I can, potentially have that be something that materializes. If I can't envision it, then there's no possibility for it.
1: Right. Um, Yeah. And every now and then these, (laughs) there's actually a a post you'll find on my site somewhere. If you search for the phrase possible futures, I ended up realizing that all these things were, whether it was like, I'm going to build my own small home or how can I learn to fly a small plane or whatever it may be in the moment when I was thinking about them. They felt like a plan. It's like, I'm going to do this thing. Yes, I am absolutely going to build my own small home. (laughs) And then, you know, a week or two passes and now I've decided I want to learn to speak Esperanto or, you know, some new thing comes up and the old one just gets archived, let's say. But that's why I'm so glad that I wrote it all down because every now and then I come back to these things. And that's why I decided to just put all of these things into a folder called Possible Futures that... Now I don't feel bad for not following through on my plan to build my own small home because for one, I learned to just call it daydreaming. And for two, I learned to categorize it as a possible future. And there are some ideas from my past that I've got, gone back to over and over again. And each time I go back to it, there it is in that text file, all my notes from two years ago when I was daydreaming about that last time. Well, now I've got some more thoughts on this since I just... You know, took this instructional course about this. So now I'm gonna add some more updated thoughts to it. And maybe I still won't do it quite yet. But there have been a few times when I finish a project, I've got some free time, and I look at my folder of possible futures. And then I go, Ooh, I'm ready to do this one now. <laughs> and then I do it. Oh, I love that.
0: I love the see when I hear you describing that and in and and through the course of this conversation. It feels like you bring, you bring me in the way that you describe things and in your suggestions to what in the yoga world we might call a very embodied place where I'm feeling very present. And like, it's that feeling of immediacy where you're like, huh, what would I do? Like it's a, a wonder and an awe and in a curiosity state that I think is why I do breathing and moving exercises and why I teach breathing and moving exercises. I think of them as like tools and vehicles to cultivate that kind of headspace that you're describing. Mm. And that's why I'm so, I'm coming back to like, how the hell did you come to this? It couldn't just be because you had some semi-retirement. Have you ever done any kind of like practices like breathing and moving or meditation kind of practices?
1: Uh, I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way.
0: Okay, fair enough. In, 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 in the spirit of what I know of you, please do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Here are some things I'm curious about. Um, I'm curious about the colloquial Indonesian language. I, John McWhorter is this great linguist who just said that if he would pick one language to be the world's like the second language that everybody speaks. He thinks colloquial Indonesian would be it. And so now I'm fascinated to find out why I want to know more about camping and self-sufficiency, being able to just walk off into a forest with a backpack and nothing else for five days. I'm curious to blindfold myself for a year. I think that would be really interesting to not see for a year. I'd really like to learn how to get my private pilot's license to learn how to fly a small airplane. I want to program this little tiny computer called the Arduino uh like I said, I want to learn how to build my own small home, which means I'd also like to learn some like basic plumbing and electrical skills, which is funny when people talk about uh, prepping for emergency, a lot of people immediately go straight to the place of like, I'm going to get some guns and a bunker. I think, no man, you know, if you be community minded and think, what can you do to offer your community? Like no man is an island, that approach, like mm-hmm. how can I be a valuable contributor to my community? Because there's your real safety in terms of, uh, like, in times of emergency is you, you're a valuable part to your community and uh, people look after each other. I'd really like to learn the programming languages of C, Elixir, Racket, and Rust. Those are the four programming languages that interest me the most right now that I really, really, really want to learn. In fact, I've even bought books on them and manuals and I just haven't put aside the time to do it yet. Uh, dancing lessons. I think that would be fun because I am just so not a dancer and have actually been actively anti-dancing my whole life. So I think it would be very self-expanding of me. Same, same as how like I took up weightlifting for the first time at the age of forty-two after actively mocking it my whole life. I was like,
0: me too, me it. too. Forty-five, I started doing <laughs> oh. it. I was mocking it forever, and now there I do go. the squats too. Me too. Yes, and I'm
1: like, and I like it. And like, feels how good. Could? Yes. And to me, that's it. By the way, that was just like you know i named laying my uh five drivers licenses out on the table but to me just the fact that i go into my garage to squat and deadlift every day or every other day like that's like a it gives me a big sense of expansion i want to read all of the six uh, all 600 of the very short introductions series of books That to me would be one of the most wonderful things you could ever do for your brain. Uh, If you go to veryshortintroductions.com, they make these little like 75 page long books that are a great condensed introduction to a subject for somebody that knows nothing about the subject. And they have like 600 of them now. And how cool would that be to read them all? I also would love to get emergency medical training. That would feel so cool to like know how to respond uh, in a, like, you know, somebody's bleeding or, broken something, How to do like emergency medical help. And somewhere in that big list is meditation and yoga. (laughs) I am actually interested in it, but just like all of those things, um, they are all things that I'm interested in, and I have tried them for no more than an hour. Somewhere between zero hours and two hours, let's say but I would really well, like I, to do them all someday.
0: I, I actually don't think you need to do it. You don't need to learn yoga practice. You already got it. <laughs> you know, you know no. what I would prefer to you is that your writing is a meditation in my mind. Like that oh, yeah, sitting definitely. down and doing that is a meditation that you're doing your possible futures. Like all the things that you put out feel like small little meditations on this and meditations on that. And even the way you describe, you know, turning things off and doing one thing at a time, uh, it, those all are, to me, the same thing. Whether it's a breathing and moving exercise or whatever you're putting your attention on, you're an observer and then there's something that's being observed and you're doing that in a single pointed way and then there's a bit of a merge that happens between the observer and the observed and those separation between them. Hmm. And that, to me, I you do, you do that. You talk about that, you know, um, in what you do. So I already think you're uh, you're already a yogi even if you don't know
1: <laughs> well thank you but, but i would like the movement aspect of it i would i'm in awe of people that can hold certain positions oh. and such and i would like to the movement
0: well i would say to you there to many of the points that you made today people use breathing and moving exercises with different purposes you know um, and some of them are more like uh, physical oriented and some of them are more like contemplative oriented Gotcha. Right. So for me, it's much more like I do squats and go for a run and a hike and do other things for certain physicalities that I want. And I, I consider that part of my overall yoga, but my practice of what I would call asana pranayama is a very specific thing, breathing and postures. And that for me is very much about um, the way my mind works and the way I perceive things and having a ritual to to keep that going in a good way for myself. So in any case, I think that uh, you already teach a lot of yoga, even if you don't know that you do. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Well,
1: I guess just to start to
0: wind us up, I want to keep going forever, but I think just in fairness <laughs> to you and to everybody listening, we should start to wrap it up. And I guess I heard you talking about this period of time with your son. And I have a daughter who I spent like the first, it wasn't full five years, but maybe the first three or four years while her mom was like bringing home more of the bacon, like I spent a lot of time with my daughter in that way that you were describing. And, And as time's gone on, things have changed a lot. And nowadays, you know, especially with the pandemic, they're like, actually, like we've been really good about, you know, trying to use my digital literacy to be making smart choices about my children and how they use the internet. And I guess I'm just curious from like dad to dad here, your son's older now. Um, I'm wondering, like, did he retain that attention span that you were trying to help him develop? Do you limit his screen time? I'm, I'm just sort of curious. I thought, what does Derek Sivers do with his kids when it comes to tech, <laughs> you know?
1: Uh I I cheated by raising him in New Zealand Yeah, um, it's funny when I talk to parents that live in a boring suburb somewhere and so their whole life is just inside their big three story house he grew up from age zero to seven in a tiny apartment in New Zealand it's a tiny apartment because we just spent no time inside like pretty much as soon as he'd wake up in the morning you know 630 in the morning he's like Hey, good morning, Dad. And I just instantly, I'd say, hey, we'd put some clothes on him and head out into the world, 6.30 in the morning. We'd just go out into nature and we would just play outside all day long. Uh, we'd uh, There's a tree in this park that we called our pizza tree because we'd very often, if we wanted pizza, we'd go pick up pizza somewhere and then we'd eat it in that tree and then go down to the beach. She just p- grew up playing in forest and all that. And so... It's been really cool to see now that we're living in Oxford, England, which in itself is very, um you know, it's only like 30,000 people, I think. And it's on the edge of the countryside. Like this morning, I, I went out at a quarter to six in the morning and took a 90 minute walk through the field full of horses, uh, which is right next to my house. So I'm really glad that we're living in places where being outside is fun. And, but I've just found that it's also his preference that, When he goes, (laughs) there is like a a classmate of his. He's eight years old now, by the way. Sorry, just for context. He's eight now. And one of his classmates lives literally three doors down from us. And when he found out, he's like, oh, whoa, Andy lives here. And he's like, hey, man, we just like knocked on Andy's door. And Andy kind of answers like kind of with like a bit of a, I call it dead face. You know, when just like somebody just got this like deadpan expression on their face. It's like, oh, Hey man, come on in. I'm going to show you how to play FIFA soccer. And it's like little Andy and his dad were just sitting there playing Nintendo or PlayStation or whatever, Xbox, um, just with these like dead expressions on their faces. And he's like, and he said to my son, like, here, okay, I'm going to show you how to do it. Okay, now this stick makes your guy go forward and that stick makes him kick the ball. And my kid just looked at him like, what are you not? Like, this is the boringest thing i've ever seen and he's like well all right andy do you want to would you want to play like let's go outside and 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 andy was just like well do you want to play i mean here grab the controls let's play and my kid was like that's not playing that's boring you pressing buttons come on let's go out let's run around and it was just interesting to see these two different definitions of play, you know? So I can't take credit for that. That's not, I mean, except for the fact- Marshall, that, you had something to do with that. I know what you mean. They're, they're their own people, but- But I chose to raise him in New Zealand. I mean, that he was born mm-hmm. in Singapore. He could have grown up completely urban in Singapore, but, you know, we made this decision when he was nine months old, like, no, no, no. I want him to grow up in nature. So that was a very deliberate decision to raise him outside for the first seven years of his life. And I definitely found that it shaped- what he thinks of as fun. So he doesn't like looking at screens very much. You know, he'll do it for like a little bit, like every now and then. Yeah. He'll watch like a little cartoon for like half an hour or something. And he's like, come on, let's go play and go play means you you run out the door and let's grab a stick here. You take this ball. Okay. Now you throw it. Okay. Let's have a sword fight. Let's just like, it's all very active and physical.
0: Well, when I hear you tell that story, uh, my takeaway, it, it speaks to our broader situation right now, because I, and it's the same thing I get from Rushkoff with his team human thing now. Like I feel, and it's why I do what I do. I, I, it's the thing that I know how to do that is encouraging. I don't know what the right word is. Like I think of you as like a humanist of sorts That that there's a certain reverence for life and compassion for humanity. And then the use of the internet <laughs> becomes a way to express and support that rather than work against it
1: yeah yeah i love that
0: well derek i'm i don't want to say goodbye but i'm gonna say goodbye thank you so much this is really you really uh you have this thing you 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 read about somebody or you think something about a person you know i don't know you at all just whatever is out there in the world and you have an idea about who that is. And then there's this like little worry, like when you meet them, like what if they don't, what if they're not cool? Like what if, you know, like, what if he doesn't, what if we can't connect to him? And the fact that this conversation has gone the way it has, you are everything I thought Derek Sivers would be.
1: <laughs> Aww, so. Thanks Jay. You're very, very sweet. And uh, I, I so appreciate your compliments. I've been smiling. I mean, sorry, I've been silent, but I've been smiling when you say all these sweets and things. So thank you. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, and I'm sure everybody listening to this is going to get a lot out of it. I just did. Thank you
0: so much, Derek. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. Well, how about that? That was freaking cool, wasn't it? <laughs> I hope some of you enjoyed that even half as much as I did. That was just so cool. I really needed that. <laughs> I needed that conversation to happen in my life in the moment that it happened. I just love the way that Derek frames things. When I when I go there in my mind where he's pointing, I feel very empowered. I feel like he said, like I'm in control and my life is feeling more fun. Like even with those of you who heard me talk about my screen addiction, I started thinking, well, maybe it's not just about like how much time I'm on the screens. Maybe instead of being like, you can't be on the screens, you got to stop being on the screens, just focus more on what am I doing when I'm on the screens. And like Derek was saying, I can choose what I want the internet to be to me. I don't have to let someone else dictate it in the same way that I get to decide what my yoga is and I don't need someone else to dictate it to me. The internet could be the same. And more than anything, this return to the fundamental wholeness of things and the wonder and beauty of life as it is. So just thank you so much, Derek Sivers, for being a cool person and offering ideas that were helpful to me. I am truly grateful. Now, it's interesting because this conversation I had with Derek today, it's a strange, paradoxical counterpoint to all the stuff I've been going through since getting approved for the loan and the unemployment assistance that I mentioned in the intro. Because now that I'm not worrying so much about my immediate financial situation, I've had more room to reflect, like Derek was talking about today. And in reflecting, I started to have a real existential questioning about being a yoga teacher in a way that I don't think I have before. Those of you who've been around for a long time, you know, sometimes I have this spiel that I give, in particular in these outros, or if you've ever come to my class, like in Shavas, and I've got like a a thread of ideas that I'm often putting out there that have to do with relinquishing the efforts that we're making, whether it's the breathing and the moving, or whether it's the just trying to figure out who you are, or pay your rent, or just all the efforting, all the thinking and the worrying, all of it, if we can, for a moment, relinquish that effort, what's there, in my experience, is this profound wonder and complete awe-inspiring experience. And I often take comfort and feel a sense of healing and perspective when I go there myself. And that's why I invite other people to come there with me. But something about feeling very privileged and this moment where I'm like looking around and seeing how much injustice and like things collapsing. Like I went to the supermarket yesterday and I haven't been in two weeks and you know we've been doing this thing where we're trying to stretch it out. So, you know, I had a lot of stuff on the list, and my cart was completely full of stuff. And my mask broke. Like I have this old mask that we had in our basement for like wood. You know, it's like the like the woodworking N95 mask, right? Well, we had one, and that's the one I've been using. And then like the straps broken like a couple of times, and I keep fixing it, and then. Like I was in the supermarket and it it broke and like, I don't know, like I had this whole freak out thing happen where it's like, I'm not allowed to be in the store without a mask. This mask is falling off and I kind of, I'm kind of propping it up, but it's not tight to my face. So it's not really protecting me. And then I'm thinking, well, are these masks really protecting us at all? And then I still had to check out. And then it was just the whole thing. By the time I got to my car, I completely broke down uncontrollably sobbing. And it it wasn't just because of the mask and me worrying about getting sick, although that was in there. It was just that the whole situation, like the reality of the situation of like leaving my house and going out there and seeing what the impact of it all has been. It just hit me in a wash and like I just, I was floored. I was useless for the rest of the day. I like got home and I broke down again. I just, it was really overwhelming. And after that experience, I just was having this real existential question about being a yoga teacher. Like, I'm talking about this stuff about wonder and awe, and am I just making us feel okay, even though everything is totally messed up? Like, am I part of a neoliberal smokescreen that makes us feel good about ourselves and enables us to acquiesce even though our systems are completely unjust? I certainly hope not. But maybe. Now, (laughs) don't get me wrong, because if I really don't look at it from this kind of macro socioeconomic perspective or something, if I just, again, return to a personal level, if I just look at what's happening in my immediate experience when I practice and I go to that place of wonder and awe I'm talking about, and when I share that with other people what that experience is, I don't don't think so. I don't think it's a smokescreen. I think it helps me have a clearer perspective to better discern. And there are certain underlying truths and realities to existence that are not subject to the politics. And I don't, I don't think that's a naive thing to say. I'm not trying to deny other aspects of our lives and realities. I'm just saying that there's some parts of it that aren't subject to it. And I think it's okay to have some trust and faith in the spark of life that is being expressed as you. So, in the end... I'm still okay with being a yoga teacher. I still think it's an important thing to do. And I'm going to keep doing it. And I certainly hope that we can get through this situation in a way that will continue to honor our humanity and won't further separate ourselves from each other and ourselves. And I I hope that in some way, this show could potentially do that some too. That's the reason why I'm doing it more than anything. And I am so profoundly grateful to those of you who are still sticking around and listening to this especially those of you who've been around from the beginning and you know who you are. It's been a, a ride <laughs> that we continue to share. And I can feel that, that you're out there along with me on it. And that kind of means everything right now. So, all right, <laughs> enough of me going on. I really hope you're doing okay, and that you can find ways to have fun in your life, even with all of this difficulty. At the very least, let's be kind, okay? Let's be kind to ourselves. Let's be kind to others. And I will talk to you again soon. Please take care. Cheers.